Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Adam Stones, one of my colleagues in the Company Watch um, data science team. Um, so welcome, Adam and Nick. And a very happy, very happy lunchtime, Joe. Indeed. And if we were recording on, on Friday um, lunchtime on the 26th of, of February. Um, Adam has very kindly agreed to join us as he heard my plea about a more detailed explanation for the GDP figures that were causing Nick and I some head scratching a couple of weeks ago. So he's going to unpick some some technicalities. Um, We'll look at that at the end, um, because before we come to that, I think there's a lot of news this week that really is worth picking up on, exploring a little bit. I'm not sure we have all the answers, but I don't think we we ever do. But certainly there's lots to to discuss and to to think about. So in terms of a a running order, we've got obviously the roadmap of sorts that has been provided by the government um, on Monday of this week. And that's kind of provided some hope or despair in equal measure, I I think it's fair to say, about the timetable for what what can unlock in the economy. Um, Employment has been a big issue this week, um, and it's worth looking at those, um, those figures for the Q4 2019, 2020, sorry, and also the latest furlough stats. Um, and of course, the big item on the horizon for this week is the budget, which is being given next Wednesday, the 3rd of March. So we'll have a look at budget and business confidence. Nick, easing of restrictions, is that the, the best place to start? Yes, I guess. Um, I mean, it's obviously good news because uh, it, despite all the um, the talk of, you know, the over egg talk about, uh, you know, the the coiled spring of an economy and and how we'll all rush out and spend lots of uh, the money we haven't spent over the last year or so. Um, Nonetheless, uh, there's no doubting the mood has lifted. You know, a lot of people now looking forward to some freedom um, and getting out and uh, and socialising again. And and it offers some hope to the worst hit industries like hospitality and the section of retail that hasn't been functioning well mm-hmm. um, with the big shift to online. So the independent uh, um, uh, retailers. Yeah. I mean, hospitality is interesting. Uh, they're not really, frankly, going to be up and running until May mm-hmm. because I don't think I know a pub chain, um, either privately or publicly, um, saying anything except the very best we will do is break even. Yeah. If we have to operate only outdoors. Yeah. Um, and, and we had glorious weather last year, but there's no guarantee that the weather will be good enough for people you know, to We're really doing this on a beautiful, sunny, sunny um, February February day. But uh, you know, if we get a bad um, April and May, uh, it's going to be a problem. Um, and uh, you know, there's a there are so many issues facing hospitality, and so many questions that will only be answered after the budget next week. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll come back to that because you know you can't say what's going to happen to hospitality and to uh, and to retail until we know how much further support the and government's going to. In particular, we're looking at furlough and business rates, holidays, aren't we? Yes, yeah, so and we're looking at how um, how closely targeted and how well targeted that is going to be. So I mean, hospitality, great you know, great news, but uh, just a huge amount of caution about mm. you know if you have risk in that sector. You know, this game is not over by any means at all. And, it's interesting, and do bear in mind that 
Oh, sorry, Nick. No, I was just going to say, do bear in mind that if you look at the figures pumped out by the uh, Office of, for National Statistics, uh, their bi-monthly survey, um, you know, that the, that sector is the worst sector on pretty much every measure. Um, you know, the percentage that, that, that are closed, uh, businesses that are closed, the percentage of businesses that are that have closed permanently, yeah, yeah. the number of staff on furlough, the number of staff with cash reserves, a uh, number of companies with cash mm-hmm. reserves. I mean, it is it, it is very very badly damaged. So we'll have to see how that plays out over the rest of the year. But we'll know much more next week. Indeed, I think the other thing I was just going to point out was that some some other kind of cold figures really with all mm. the, the hope around hospitality and travel. Obviously, um, we had two reports this week about pension deficits from BA and Mitchells and Butler. Um, and, you know, the, the the pension deficits predate, let's be clear, they, these pension deficits predate um, the pandemic, but it certainly hasn't helped either with um, making up some shortfall, the, the pension deficit yep. contributions, or indeed um, we've had Mitchells and Butler saying that they are suspending their contributions um, for, for a period which has been agreed by the, the trustees. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's startling if you look at the numbers because, you know, British Airways, uh, they had already suspended uh, six months of contributions to the pension Mm. scheme. They're now going for another six months. Um, They will be deferring a total of £450 million into a scheme that is heavily in deficit anyway. Um, And that's by a company that announced a loss this morning of £6.5 billion. That's £200 million a day. Mm losses and which uh, had to raise, uh, I wouldn't say an emergency, but had to raise an additional two billion pounds by way of funding last week. And, you, you, and, you know, and that's the reality, isn't it? I think that is with all the with all the promise of good times to, to come. The reality is that here and now there are some serious um, cash issues in, in lots of these um, ab- businesses. Ab- absolutely right. Um, and you also picked up, uh, you know, in your research for today, this point about um, you, know, you know the fact that the, it looks absolutely certain that there's going to be an extension of, uh, for protection on one of the aspects of the problems that uh, hospitality businesses face, which is the rent yes. enforcement ban, and it now looks certain that that will be pushed out to the end of June. And it was interesting the British Property Federation reacted to that news uh, with a, with a very simple little announcement, pointing out that by the end of June. So picking up the June um, rent quarter, oh, great quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, the total, uh, their estimate of the total unpaid rent at that point will be £7 billion. That's double what it is today almost, isn't it? Well, I mean, 4, 4. 4. 4. 4.2 at the fag end of last year with the December one. So, um, you know, it, it, it is, it's a huge problem. And that's, as we said last week, a potential dent, not just in landlords' balance sheets, but also in the banks that lend to them. Mm. with uh, with that one so that's where we stand with the uh, the easing of the uh, restrictions good news but let's be careful about how we how we think this will play out indeed um, then let's should we move on to employment then yes. that's the next that's the next big um big headline so we had the we've had some contradictory um stats and so i'm going to give some some credit to adam here for for helping unpick the actual difference so we have ons who were reporting um 6.5 million people on furlough, but the much more reliable stats we think are the HMRC furlough stats, which is saying 4.7 million people. Yes, 4.7 million. Um, uh, and they get their data from 
the payroll information. And, and, and so it may be a little bit behind time, but it, it, it will be much more accurate. So I'm inclined to believe 4.7 million. The important thing, of course, is it's not just 4.7 million, but it's 700,000 up from the month before, mm. which shows what the, second, what the third lockdown has done. And uh, you know, at the risk of repeating myself for the umpteenth time on this, when you look at those 4.7 million, uh, there was a, a rather cynical and sad comment way back at the beginning of the furlough scheme where some uh, economist wag said, the trouble with this is that these people are unemployed, they just don't know it yet. And a lot of estimates that up to half of those people could end up unemployed, in which case the uh, unemployment figures will go off the chart. I was also going to say that it might be worth noting that for what the ONS figures are worth, they do actually show a rise in the in the number of claimants on the furlough scheme from mid-January. So the problem, at, mm. at least at the moment, uh, is getting worse. Of course, there's been a lifting in mood following the uh, the roadmap that was announced this week. So we'll, we should keep a close eye on those ONS figures. They might tell us the direction of travel, even if they're not particularly reliable in terms of the overall absolute number. Oh, yes, ab absolutely. And if you, if you look into the guts of the unemployment figures, um, the, the, uh, they're better than they were in December. So we're looking at an 83,000 drop in the number of, of, of new um, claimants, but it's still 700,000 more than it was pre-pandemic. And of course, the big issue is that 60% of those job losses are among young people and, of course, predominantly um, young female workers mm. too, uh, which is which is an absolute tragedy uh, that the government is still faffing about um, trying to find some, some effective solution rather than something that plays well in a press conference. So yeah, and hopefully there might be some more um, news in the in the budget. Although I suspect that's a kind of a longer um, a longer period that 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 may be to to address these these issues. Yeah. Um, Shall we move on? I'm, I'm conscious of, of time going to run away with us as it always always does. Um, coming on towards the budget and and business confidence, and I think we're we're all kind of holding on for the for the budget for next week. Lots of speculation as we um, expected, and really. I think Adam, you made this this point quite quite well. There's almost kind of an, we're getting to an ideological struggle, aren't we, between um, the way the way forward. We've got on the one hand um, the chance of being urged not to do anything too soon in terms of trying to pay back um, debt, but on the other hand, the fact that this will have to be paid back at some point. And where is the where is the roadmap? Uh, that's right. And the the thing about crises, this this COVID crisis. In some ways, crises give you an opportunity to have these kind of ideological fights and all of the policies become much more important because they set the tone for the next, well, in some cases, decades. And we've seen that following the crisis in the 1970s with the, the oil spike, the IMF crisis and stagflation. And also, of course, with the war, the post post-Second uh, post World War consensus that developed around the welfare state. So what happens right now in the budget next week and, and beyond is actually very important for the future of the, uh, of the country. Yes, yeah. it's, and it's very interesting because um, suddenly, almost out of left field, uh, there is increasing speculation about the risk of inflation. And it's something that, you know, I think we we've touched on it a couple of times in the past, in these podcasts, Joe. But um, the first I picked up on on this was a, a very interesting 
debate discussion type article in the Times by Simon Nixon, a very, very, very respected commentator, um, who talked about what has spooked economists on the inflation front has been the Biden uh, rescue package in America, which is you know, not only uh, the biggest in history, but comes on top of the uh, 900 um, billion uh, rescue that uh, Trump put in place last year. Mm-hmm. And that is leading to predictions that the US economy may rebound in 2022 by up to 8%. And of course, roaring roaring uh, growth tends you know, to produce inflation, whether it will this time. I don't know. And of course, what inflation then does is to uh, tends to provoke central banks into uh, using interest rates as a lever to control runaway growth. And that's a big problem when there's all this a debt. Big problem when there. you're borrowing money like a man with no mm. arms and uh, uh, and the financing of, of government deficits. And to cap it all this morning, our friend and often referred to economist at the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, has uh, issued, uh, you know, has, has done an interview where he has flipped seamlessly from being a growth bull to an inflation bear. And he uh, is referencing the risk of hyperinflation like in the 1920s, which followed in the Great Depression, mm. which followed the uh, Spanish flu pandemic. So he, he may simply be being as catchy as he always is and jumping on a bandwagon, um, which looks interesting. But nonetheless, the one thing we do not need in the present situation is, infl- is, is any f- uh, swift up to, uh, uptick in inflation. And actually, you had an interesting point on this, didn't you, in terms of the, you know, the spending frenzy, but also the problem that the Bank of England is, is pointing out as the kind of supply, um, supply issue on, um, on this. That's right. And, and the Bank of England did touch on this in their monetary policy report earlier in the month, the idea that there could be some longer lasting scarring effects of COVID on the economy that might harm supply. And also because the measures have affected different sectors differently, it could be that you need to move resources between sectors and there's some friction there. And the idea is that if Andy Haldane's previous remarks are right and everybody goes out and spends the money that, that some people have saved during the, during the lockdown, then it could be that business, particularly particularly um, the situation of its balance sheets and the, the sort of lower investment that we might come to expect over the next over the next few years, could could struggle to keep up with that demand, and of course that would drive uh, upward upward pressure on prices. Yeah, mm, well, up, upward pressure on prices, and also it, it will uh, it will put upward pressure on ins- on insolvencies because you know so again we've referred to it previously on these uh, these chats, one of the great enemies of companies coming out of uh, any sort of uh, recession or correction like uh, like this is growth because, you know, the bombed out balance sheets are not great for supporting growth. And, you know, anybody who's any galloping entrepreneur who thinks he can grow his business without extra working capital resources is heady, is on the short road to uh, to failure. Yeah. Yeah, I think we will. We will say that. Now, this that's that's quite a nice segue into um, some of the uh, insolvency. I think we've got something from R three on the um, yes. on the budget. Their shop, yes. shopping list, if you like. R three. I'll just explain for those who've uh, been fortunate enough to avoid getting involved with it. Um, R three is the 
uh, trade body representing insolvency practitioners in the UK. And they came uh, out with their, you know, lots of organisations do this, but their shopping list for things they wanted to see addressed in the budget. Um, and and, and it's some policy moves as well as some, some fiscal moves. Um, and they're saying what I guess we're all saying, which is we cannot have a cliff edge ending to the support schemes. They've mm. got to be wound down gradually because otherwise companies, it, the shock will be, the adjustment will be just too great for too many businesses. So, you you know, if you get a cliff edge, companies will fail. If you get a gradual withdrawal, they can restructure, debts can be rescheduled or can be, you know, haircuts can be uh, can, can be taken by lenders. All the failures can be in a more managed way. I guess there will be some companies that, even with a with a roadmap, we'll, we'll think enough's enough. But absolutely right. The, the second one, which is a, a, a nerdy but very very important uh, point, is our uh, three were expressing the frustration that insolvency practitioners uh, have with the fact that you do not get cross departmental joined up thinking when a restructuring proposition. Is, is put forward. So you, you may get um, uh, HMRC taking one view and you might get local rating authorities taking um, a, another view and there may be another government department that's involved as a creditor and they just don't join, they just, uh, the Department of Work and Pensions may be involved. Yeah. So uh, what they're saying is we, we need to get the government to act with one voice on that and they particularly highlight their third point is HMRC is usually the uh, a key creditor in any restructuring process, a CVA or um, an administration workout or some of these new procedures, the moratorium or the um, scheme or the um, uh, restructuring plan. Mm-hmm. And you know, certainly, I can say from my days as an active insolvency practitioner, I can think of half a dozen rescue. Um, assignments which failed because a simple thing we couldn't get HMRC to vote at the creditors meeting. So they you were under wouldn't. the threshold of the the required. Yeah, so creditors. we couldn't get the, we couldn't we then couldn't get the thing through. Even though um, had they voted, there would have been a better outcome for them and for the rest of the creditors. But they didn't. So um, R3 is is saying, oh for goodness sake, you know, get engaged. I mean, I, I have a certain sympathy with. Um, with HMRC, because goodness knows what on earth is going on inside HMRC at the moment. You know, they're under so many pressures, so many Mm. things uh, are happening. And I don't suppose staff morale is is any better than it ever has been. And training as well, presumably. This is is an issue of of training and um, actually helping people to understand how they can, um, can be involved with the um, with the profession, I know, but but it, it, this did lead me on to something um, which which sort of blew my mind earlier this week. I was having a marketing chat with uh, with an insolvency firm that I do some work for, and we were talking about um, one of the things that they do, as a lot of professional firms do, is run um, advertising campaigns on Google on a pay per click basis, mm-hmm. and the. Um, uh, the internet guru in the marketing department at this firm sort of very quietly said, um, you'd be amazed what's happened to the price per click that Google are charging for ad campaigns around uh, around the various terms for insolvency, generally mm-hmm. used terms for insolvency. And so I said, give me some numbers. Well, here we go. 
if if they're running a, an ad campaign and somebody searches for voluntary insolvency under that search term, in November, the price per click charged by Google was £2.20. Which is fairly middle of the road, I think. Middle of the road, of, yeah. De- of December, it dropped to two pounds and a penny. In January, it was eight pounds fifty-four. <gasps> and now, in the last thirty days, it's eleven pounds fifty-six, wow. which wow. tells you a number of things. Firstly, how much activity is going on, because the algorithm that sets the pricing is responsive to demand. Yeah, and also. Um, it, it suggests that somewhere in that algorithm, it's uh, Google saying, this is a nice little earner because there's going to be a lot of this. And, and I think presumably that the, the, those insolvency um, practices themselves are willing to pay this yes. kind of money because they're actually going to get um, converted leads from, um, uh, uh, from these absolutely. Kind of searches. And, and actually, it's, it's also interesting because it's, it's at the moment proving incredibly difficult in the insolvency profession to, to convert leads. Plenty of, plenty of interest, but converting them is... Mm. is it's always been difficult, but it's much worse now. But I just found that, that that a real indication of an awful lot of people are now beginning to look at this year ahead at the end of the government support schemes and say, maybe we just need to check to see that we're going to get through this and whether we should keep blundering on through it. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. That may be something to, to come back to, actually. And that's maybe our can be our metric, our barometer of, um, of what's happening. <laughs> um, so... I think that, that's, a, a, again, a quite a, a whistle-stop tour through what's been happening this week. But it would be nice to turn, we've got some time at the end, to turn to this very vexed question that was really, um, really had Nick and I scratching our heads about GDP um, and these apparently two contradictory figures. And we knew that we, it must be us, and indeed it was us. Um, so Adam has very kindly said that he will come and, and, and shine the light on where we went wrong. So our confusion was we had an annual fall in GDP that was being um, reported as 9.9%. And then another stat, which was the Q4 2019 to Q4 2020 change being 7.8% or 8% in, in Bank of England terms. So Adam, how can both of these things be true? <laughs> so really, um, the first thing you need to know about GDP is that it's a measure of economic activity. And economic activity needs to be measured over a certain period of time. So you need to measure it over a month or a quarter or a year. Those are the three that are typically used and used by the ONS. So it's not like unemployment, where feasibly I could conduct a survey today going around houses door to door and trying to work out what the unemployment rate is at this moment. GDP needs to be measured over a period of time. So whenever you see a GDP statistic, you have to be really careful and ask two questions. Which period is that activity measured over? And which period am I comparing to? And so if I take each of those figures in turn, and if you don't mind, I'll start with the 7.8% fall. So that is the sum of all of the activity in Q4 2020, so at the back end of last year. So taking all of the activity for those three months and comparing with the activity for the same three months in 2019. And if you do that, you see that the you see that the economic activity is 7.8% down compared to where it was a year ago. But that's right. just for the final three quarters. So actually Quite anything... Mm-hmm. So actually, anything that happened in between is not necessarily captured by those figures. And goodness me, we know that a lot happened in between. <laughs> yeah. So 7.8% is bad enough. But if you look at Q2, so if you look at 
uh, April, May and June 2020. And you can Mm -hmm. compare with Q2 from 2019, which was a fairly boring year. I mean, not much growth at all in 2019, just a sort of standard flat year. And that that Q2 2020 was 21% down on the same three months the year before. So how do you get to the 9.9% figure? Well, in that case, you're actually measuring GDP over the entire year. So you're looking at the entire year 2020, the complete roller coaster, the fall in Mm -hmm. the the first six months of the year, the partial recovery towards the back end of the year. And when you look at all of the output for the entire year 2020, and you compare to the entire year 2019, the more standard year, you find a total fall of 9.9%, and that accounts for all of the lost activity in the year. Right. Thank you. I think that that is a relief. I hope that's clear. <laughs> I think the, the confusion, I think, was this this kind of re- reference to Q4 2019 and the kind of lazy part just thinks, well, that's pre-pandemic. I want to kind of understand where we were before and when we're going to get back to that, that level. Um, and so how do we do that? How do we have that kind of com- comparison? So in terms of the figures that come out of the ONS, they, they really publish two sets of figures. They publish monthly figures. So you actually mentioned those on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that that there's a 1.2% increase in December. That's comparing output in December to output in November. And the monthly figures give you an idea, a good idea of the direction of travel. So they're very current, but they're not necessarily the most accurate. And that's because they're really early estimates. They're based only on one way of measuring GDP. So they're based on production. And actually, there's three different ways, income and expenditure. Uh, as well. And they should all agree, but those monthly figures are just based very roughly on the on production. And even all of the data for that is not in when the monthly estimates are compiled. Right. Okay. Now, so really for reliability, you should be looking at the quarterly figures. And those are revised many, many times. And in the end, they go into the national accounts. Mm-hmm. And and we should therefore be comparing the the economic activity, the GDP for each quarter to what it was back in Q4 2019. So we should use that as our kind of base index. That's right. And we should look, when does that that reach pre-pandemic levels? And in fact, we are doing that because we've published the the Company Watch COVID timeline. Maybe we can put a link uh, link to that. And for that, we we compare the we compare the the GDP for each quarter to Q4 2019, following what the OBR did, and we're basing that on OBR figures for what's happened and what they think is going to happen, and we will update that following the budget next week when the OBR publish their next set of their next set of forecasts. Fantastic. So, in terms of then of, of the best indicator to understand the current state of the economy, what what we should be looking at. So I would make two points going forward. So GDP, as I say, it's a measure of economic of economic activity. And so we need to be really careful when we look at GDP figures that are going to be released in the coming months, because just to give you an idea of, of how having these large swings in percentages and all these different periods and so on could sort of give us a false impression, if in the next quarter, so in Q2 2021, we have the same economic activity as we had in Q4 2020, so the back end of last year, following the partial recovery. Because Q2020 was so bad, we would actually see an annual increase in the second quarter compared to the second quarter the previous year of 17.3%. 
and oh, wow. the and economic activity would be no better off than it was at the back end of last year. So it will look, it could look as though the economy is doing really well. We bounced back quite well from Q1, but in reality, that that's not what's being compared. What's being compared is Q2 2021 to Q2 2020, not what's happened in between. And then the second point I want to make is just about GDP more generally. Mm -hmm. So GDP, a measure of economic activity, and there's a nice little analogy here to what we do at Company Watch, because at Company Watch, we look at at companies and we we see that some companies have very strong profits, but very weak balance sheets, and we call them water skiers. Mm -hmm. And the idea with the water skiers is there's a vulnerability there, because once the profits, or if the profits dry up, then the weakness of the balance sheet leaves leaves the company very exposed. And in some sense, we could be looking at something similar with the UK economy. We may well see over the next year the Bank of England forecasting by the end of this by the end of this year that economic activity returns to the level it was in Q4 2019, so pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the economy is in anything like the state that it was pre-pandemic. And we know we're going to see long-term scarring effects and so on. And in some sense, that effect on the resilience of the economy is not going to be captured in the quarterly activity figures. So it's well worth bearing in mind that we need to take a holistic view of the economy and not just look at GDP. Oh, wow. That was a, <laughs> very impressive. I think we can be out of a job soon, Nick. I hope um, that's okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a really, really good explanation. Thank you so much. I think that's that certainly um, really helped to, to anchor us. And I suppose in, in normal times, if we can remember such times, that, that difference between the Q4 figure compared to the previous Q4 or the annual figure, we're talking about such small amounts that we don't necessarily understand that there is a there is a difference. Whereas these huge numbers, it makes a big difference to understand that. that. That's that's right, Joe. And and I think I told you earlier in the week just to just to give some idea of the scale of what we're dealing with. If we look at Q1 last year, so Q1 2020, the start of the pandemic, perhaps only really seeing an impact in March, and we compare that to Q4 2019 pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. we saw a fall, a quarter-on-quarter fall of 2.9%. And that is the that was the largest quarter-on-quarter fall right from the beginning of the spreadsheet back in 1955. And that was wow. just Q1. And we know what happened in Q2. In Q2, we saw we saw a further fall, you know, a much bigger fall. So it's well worth bearing in mind that we're in we're in very different economic times to those that we're used to, and therefore we need to be much more careful when we interpret the statistics. Absolutely, great, great points. So I think on that on that note, I I, I can't better that, Adam. So thank you so much. Um, <laughs> You're for, very for welcome, some, Joe. It's my clarity. pleasure. Nick, as always, a great pleasure to to talk to you. Thank you so much for um, my pleasure joining. too. And to all of you for listening, thanks very much. And we'll be again next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.